0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, grab those and turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one near you. Uh, you'll find Colossians 3 on page 823 of it. Uh, we want you to be able to follow along with us this morning in the Word of God so you know we're not making any of this up. Let's pray before we get into this. Father, we thank you uh, just for your church this morning. God, we thank you for each and every person uh, who could be here today. Uh, Lord, we thank you that, they, uh, that you worked in their life in such a way that they took the time out of their busy lives and their busy schedule to uh, devote this hour to you. And we ask now that you'll just bless that. God, as we uh, unpack your word, as we go through it, Lord, and we look at this, uh, this topic that's dear enough to you that you addressed it in your word to us. Um, Lord, we just pray that you would be the one who speaks this morning. You would be the one who teaches. You'd be the one who moves. That you would uh, just push uh, me out of the way, push the distractions of life out of the way, um, and God. That you would just take center stage in this moment. Now, this is your word. These are your people. Uh, this is your kingdom that we're serving, and so we pray that you'll do your work now. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are at war. And by we, I don't mean our country, I mean the church. As the church, we belong to the kingdom of God, and for as long as time has existed, the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God has been at war with the kingdom of darkness. And this is much bigger, it plays on a much bigger scale than we ever realize, but it also plays out on a much smaller scale than we often notice. Which is why whenever someone says that they're bored in their faith in Jesus, it just tells me they don't understand what's happening. A couple weeks from today, we're going to look at the fall of man in Genesis, the moment where sin enters into the world and everything changes because our perfect God had spoken into being a perfect creation, free from any flaws, free from any tragedy or sin or death. And then man sinned and it carried great ramifications. Now the world that we live in, the creation is marred, it's no longer perfect. Now nothing was like it was designed to be. And in that moment, God initiated his plan to redeem and restore everything back to its original design. Right after the fall, he makes a promise that one day he would send one who would defeat the power of sin forever. And when that day came, Jesus gave his life on the cross to pay the price for sins. And one of the most glorious outcomes of that is, that is the deliverance that you and I and we as individuals can have now. For if we give our lives to Jesus, we ask him to forgive us, then all our sins are wiped free and we are granted eternal life with him. But often as we make our way through the scriptures, often as we act in the church, we act like that's the whole story. But see, God's story of redemption was never going to end with just us. For Jesus did not come to redeem the church, he came to redeem the entire cosmos. See, all of creation has been marred by sin. All of it will be redeemed. All of it will be made new according to the Bible. Which means there's no one that you ever meet, there's no place you ever go, there's no aspect of creation that God has not went to war for. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to enter into this battle. And this should lead to excitement. This should lead to purpose. This should lead to fulfillment because there's nothing that you do that you cannot do for a greater purpose than yourself. And today we're going to look at one arena of this that we all have to experience in this life. But it's an arena that far too often, if we're honest, Christians just don't have a biblical view of. Far too often we don't give it the significance that it deserves because too often we just don't see this like God does. I mean, at the end of Colossians 3, Paul's going to go at this in a way that leaves little doubt as to how we are to live in this arena. So today, we're going to look at work. Work is an aspect of life that takes up more time than anything else we do. So from that perspective alone, we need to be sure that we have the proper view of it because we're going to spend so much of our lives working. Right, so let's look at Colossians 3. We're going to start in verse 22. It says this, Slaves... Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Okay, one verse in, I hope you have a lot of questions already. Okay. If you remember, uh, back to last week, in this section, Paul is addressing Christian households, right? He's, last week we covered uh, the verses where he talked about the family, the ways that husbands and wives and parents and children are to interact with each other. And in the very next sentence, without a break, he addresses slaves, And if you're like me, and in this way I really hope you are, that word brings some really negative connotations to your brain. And yet if you read the rest of Colossians 3 and the start of Colossians 4, the Bible never says what I wish it would say. It never condemns slave owners. It never tells slaves to fight for their freedom and dignity. So before we move on to work, I think we need to address this. Paul is writing to Christian households, and in the list he includes slaves, which is your first indication that slavery in that time was different than how we view it today. Slaves were seen as a part of the house, as an extension of the family, and the writers of the New Testament wrote to the realities of their day, and the realities of their day was that slavery was rampant. It was a known and real part of both Roman and Greek society, which is where they were planning all these churches. But there are some key differences between slavery in that day and the abomination that was put into place by our nation hundreds of years later. Slavery in the time period of the New Testament was used as a means of of filing bankruptcy or paying for a crime. And so what happened was this. If you were in debt to someone, whether it was financial or you needed to cover something that you stole or damaged and you just had no means, you had no money to pay it back, then you could voluntarily sell yourself or a relative to someone and they could work off that debt. Both the Romans and Greeks, so they, as they carried this out, employed a system by which slaves could still own property. Slaves still earned an income, and eventually they would make enough to buy back their freedom. Now, individual treatment of slaves, I'm sure, varied from house to house. Right, just like individual treatment of employees varies from company to company today. They, they were cruel, mean masters who were unfair or harsh to their slaves, and they were good masters who treated them with the dignity they deserved as a human. In fact, historians tell us that at that time period, multiple slaves, having once paid their debt off, chose to remain in their master's house and stay as a slave the rest of their lives because on their own they'd gotten into debt. On their own they'd gotten into trouble, and they didn't want to risk it again. Serving their master, they'd be cared for, they'd be provided for. Now, despite all of this, okay, despite all the differences from what we pull up as slavery and what was really going on in the New Testament, the thrust of the Bible points us in the direction that this still is an ideal. That all human beings made in the image of God have the same dignity. It's why in verse 11 of this chapter Paul reminds the church there is no slave or free. There is no difference between one or the other. But Christ is all and is in all. That all of us are level at the cross of Jesus Christ. We're all embedded with his dignity and his image. We all need his grace. And that gives everyone the same amount of worth. Which makes the slave trade employed by western nations and our nations and our history so despicable. See, when Paul is writing to slaves and masters here in Colossians, he's writing to people who have voluntarily entered into this to repay a debt, to fix their life or right or wrong. The slave trade where men and women were kidnapped from their homes, shipped across an ocean, bought and sold as property and forced to work because of the color of their skin was a horrendously despicable practice that was an affront to a holy God and nothing in the scriptures can justify it. In fact, in First Timothy, Paul says that even in that day, slave traders, a far cry from what we practice in our nation later, but moving in that direction, even they were ungodly, sinful, and unholy, and they did not conform to the gospel. Because Paul knew the moment you go from letting them work off a debt to trading them is the moment they go from a human to property. Now, with that understanding, with that background, we must realize slaves are also given a really high level of importance by the New Testament authors. They're addressed in multiple books, again and again by the New Testament writers, especially, especially those slaves who had accepted Jesus. Because the authors of the New Testament saw how important they could be to changing people's view on a topic that was actually dear to God. One of the drawbacks of this system that the Romans and Greeks employed was that, especially in Greek culture, people's view of work was greatly diminished labor hard work these were things for uneducated people these were things for poor people these were things for the slaves it wasn't befitting of a high class person which is why when you go through the new testament you read where paul whenever he would travel somewhere to plant a church he went out of his way to work in that city because he was trying to redeem the view of work that people had he was trying to model for the church how important work is because work is not something that we are to try and get away from The goal of our lives shouldn't be to advance ourselves to the point where we don't work anymore. Work is actually a gift from God. So Paul and Peter and the other writers of the New Testament wrote these letters instructing slaves how they could represent Jesus in their work. One, so they could be a witness to those they work with. And four, and two, to begin to elevate the view the church had of work. And so from these verses we get a nice theology of work. We get to see how God wants his followers to work. And here's what this means. Even though we don't have a system of slavery set up in our country, thank God, it doesn't mean that we get to skip these verses like they're irrelevant. In fact, they actually show us how God expects us to work and act as employees and bosses in the workforce. Which, by the way, I'm going to warn you, depending on how good your boss is or how much you love your job, you'll either find these verses really easy or really, really difficult to swallow. But let's break down what Paul tells these people in order to give a proper view of work. So let's read verse 23 again. He says, Slaves, obey your masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. The first thing he tells them is that they are to obey, and they are to obey their earthly masters. Now there's two things there that are interesting to me. Right, first he's telling them that their masters actually have authority over them, but they're not the ultimate authority. That as followers of Jesus, they have a master who reigns above every authority on this earth. And we're going to unpack that in a bit. But secondly, they're told simply to obey. This one's not hard to apply, is it? Listen, because followers of Jesus are to submit ourselves to his authority. We're to submit ourselves to the authorities that he places over us in our lives. It's not a difficult concept. It's just hard to live out. And here's what it means. If your boss tells you to do something, you do it. If they went against your idea, you still do it. If they're acting unfairly towards you, you do what they say. If you disagree with their decision, you do what they say. Because when you honor the authorities that God has placed over you, you honor God. So until a decision is made, sure, you can share your input. You can stick up for what you think should be best. You can appeal on behalf of what you think should be done. But when the decision is made, you follow that decision. And then you trust God with your future. You trust God with your family. You honor Him by submitting to the authority of your boss, even when you disagree. And it gets better. He writes, that "They should do what they say, not only when their eye is on you to curry favor." He's saying, "Listen, don't perform, don't put on a show." Right? If you've worked any time at all, you've more than likely been a coworker with an actor, haven't you? There's one of these cats that when the boss is around, they're fully engaged, right? They're all in, they're showing off, they're putting out max effort, and then the second the boss turns his back, it's all recreation and loafing time. Listen, that's two-faced, that's cheap, it's pathetic, and it's beneath a follower of Christ. One of the things that we are called to in the Bible is a level of consistency, right? The Bible says that as followers of Christ, we need to be authentic and real. We should not be, as James puts it, double-minded and unstable in all of our ways, we should, as Jesus puts it, let our yes be yes and our no be no. This, there needs to be a growing consistency in your life that means that who you are at home and who you are at church and who you are at work and who you are around your friends and who you are around your coworkers and who you are around your boss is just simply who you are. That There aren't masks or personas or personalities you put on in different places. You're just you. So don't be one employee when you're around your boss, don't be another when you're around your coworkers, and don't be another when you're alone. Paul writes, don't also don't work just to curry their favor. This means don't put on a show just to make yourself look good. You should not work for the primary motivation of promoting yourself. Because here's what happens. If all your focus is on advancement, if all your focus is on moving up the ladder, then at some point that will overtake you and you will leave others in your wake. At some point that will control you and, and you will paint them in a light that makes them look worse and you look better. You won't take blame for things that are your fault and you'll take credit that things, had, that things that had nothing to do with you. Proverbs says, let another man praise you. Jesus says that you are to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust God for everything else. In Luke 16, Jesus says that whoever is faithful with little can be trusted to be faithful with much. The idea is simply this, simply be the best you can with where you are. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells the believers there that they're to stay in the lot in life that they're in when they were saved by Jesus. So Paul's writing to slaves. If you were slaves when Jesus saved you, don't fight for your freedom. You're just simply to work as hard as you can and trust that God will take care of you, be it through freedom or promotion or some other means. Because if you're always focused on moving up, that's not a life of faith. A life of faith is a life that's fully present in the home and in the job and in the places that god has you right now and if you're faithful there you will be the best you can be in the name of jesus and then you let him advance you in his timing should he see fit to do so in fact for all of you here today that have a boss which i assume is the majority of you the best advice i've ever heard on this is this you make your boss look as good as you possibly can You go out of your way to make them look good. You go out of your way to serve them. You go out of your way to elevate them. You go out of the way to give them credit. And that will teach you valuable lessons in humility and service. And trust me, the Lord will honor that. And again, if you've worked in the workforce long enough, you've worked with people who simply want to promote themselves and you know how frustrating it is to work with those people. Which is part of the reason why God includes these things in his word. Because if you claim jesus and then you're a terrible employee or coworker or boss you do harm to the name of christ it's gonna be anybody who wants to associate themselves with anything you believe no one will want to be a part of your church no one will want to experience the grace of jesus if what it has brought about in your life is pettiness two-faced self-centered living and working nobody's going to want a part of that now I understand, I, I, I can almost hear the thoughts as we go through it. I understand there are reservations, objections going through some of your heads. But I believe Paul answers all of those at the end of verse 22. When he says that followers of Christ, that when we work, we should work with reverence for the Lord. Because so many of our reservations to this deal with things that we pursue to be unfair. You understand, I've worked this job for years, I've never once gotten a raise. Or if I have, it's just been really minor ones. Maybe your boss plays favorites and you're not one of them. Maybe there's other coworkers taking credit for the work that you've done. Maybe there's just simply too many politics at work and you can't get ahead. Maybe it's just an incredibly unfair environment. Listen to me, I don't work where you work, okay? And all your concerns may be true. Let's just say they are. Let's say they're 100% true. So I want to tell you this with all sincerity and gentleness it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter because you've been called to more. You've been called to not lower yourself to the practices of this world. You've been called to not look out for yourself, but to carry the banner of Christ. And if you think that's unfair, then think about what we're reading here. Paul's not addressing employees to get paid and get to go home. He's writing to slaves. So whatever happens at your job, you get to go home when your shift ends. You have rights that they didn't have. And to slaves, the Bible says, you work as hard as you can. You obey and you do this out of reverence for Jesus because we don't want fairness from God understand that you don't want fairness from god because fair means i pay for my own sins what's fair is for all of us to answer for each of our own sins for all of us to pay the price for the hurt that we've caused so what's fair is jesus never dies from me what's fair is i stay in my sins in the eyes of god what's fair is that i spend an eternity in hell so get this as much as we don't like it fairness is not the aim of a follower of christ Simply don't get to elevate fairness as the point of our lives because Jesus has taken away our right to be a victim. Once the perfect, holy, divine, sinless God of the universe is beaten and whipped and pierced and nailed to the cross for the sins that I committed, I no longer get to ignore what he calls me to do because it's not fair. Because Jesus simply wasn't fair with me. He took on pain, he took on hurt, he took on suffering, he took on loss, he took on death for me. And then he said, you follow me. In fact, in Luke 14, Jesus comes right out and tells us that we should actually consider, we should actually count the costs and consider what it will take before we agree to be a follower of his. And if you know the gospel, you're thinking, well, what's, what's the cost he's talking about? Because the Bible lists up the idea that he did everything. He's the one who came. He's the one who lived the perfect life. He's the one who died on the cross for my sins. He's the one who rose from the dead. And all I have to do is accept that, and he pays for my sins and grants me eternal life. And all that's true. So what's the cost he's talking about? Well, the cost is your life. Right? Because you must accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. And now, when you do that, he gets to call the shots. Right? And when he calls the shots, here's what he says. He says that We deny ourselves. He says that we take up our cross and follow him now we don't get to defend ourselves now we don't get to fight for people to be fair with us now the promotion is not the aim of my life now my aim and my goal is to make jesus look good it's to share him it's to show people how awesome he is and yeah sometimes that can occur in my successes but a lot of times that occurs when i'm treated unfairly and i'm tempted to take a shortcut and i don't When people criticize me and I respond in a gracious manner. When we take wounds, when we take slights, when we take hurts with a peace and joy that only he can give us. Because we simply aren't victims. We are victors in Christ. And this plays out in everything. Look at verse 23. Listen to this language. Whatever you do. Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Every single thing that you do, you are to work at it with all your heart as if you're working for Jesus because you are. That's why Paul was sure to point out in the start of verse 22 that slaves were to obey their earthly masters because they have a master that rules above those. So whatever it is, your current work situation, whatever it is you do, you work at it with all your heart because you're working for Jesus. And this is why this passage applies to all of us, because work isn't contained to going to a job. If you're retired this morning, praise God, right? But listen, you never retire from working for the kingdom of God. If you're a stay-at-home mom, are you kidding me? That's work. And I don't want any part of it, okay? You guys just do what you do, right? If you're in school, that's work. And work has always been a gift from God. Work is not a result of sin. It is given to human beings before sin entered the equation. Genesis tells us that once God made this world and placed Adam in the garden, he was told to work and keep it. You've been designed to work. You've been designed to be creative. You've been designed to produce because you've been designed in God's image. God is a worker. God creates. He provides. He sustains. He redeems. In John 5, Jesus said, my father is at his work to this very day and I too am working. So work has always been a part of the original design of human beings. Sin hasn't changed this, but it's added to the struggle. This is all the fall change. When when sin entered the cosmos, work went from being a righteous blessing to human beings to being a righteous blessing to human beings with a curse added on top. Which, as bad as that is, you could argue gives your work even more meaning. Because now, even in addition to fulfilling your design, we're fighting the curse. We're actively engaging in the war on darkness by working well. Think of it this way. It takes no effort at all to let the curse take over. Don't believe me? Don't mow your lawn for the next three months. Tell me what it looks like. Go on today. Open the windows of your house and then abandon it. Leave it alone for six months. Don't touch anything. Come back. Look around. Tell me what it looks like. We don't have to put out any effort at all for the curse to take effect. Weeds, thorns, thistles, these things will grow on their own. But creativity beauty and art and order and learning and instruction these take effort and they're always worth it see when we work we restore the glory of creation to its intended state when we work we bring dignity on ourselves as humans made in God's image I know some of you are dog people your dog will never write a symphony Your cat's never going to learn to spell and write. Your, Your gorilla won't build a building. A deer simply won't pave a road. Animals don't grow gardens. They don't learn. They don't coach. They don't teach. They don't create. Engineering, brilliance, creativity, music, art, these are the expressions of the image of God in us. These are displays of our dignity as human beings. So no matter how menial or pointless you think your task is, do it for him. It's far too often we underestimate how important our daily tasks are. Martin Luther addressed this when he wrote this. He said, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but simply because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by embedding little crosses on the shoes, but by simply making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. See, what Luther's saying there is that we fight against the curse. We fight against darkness. We fight against disorder. We fight against the fall with every task that we pursue in our lives with excellence. We are called to go to work wherever it is he has us and work in such a way that brings honor to him because we're working for him. And then Paul says, trust that he'll care for you. He'll reward you. Jesus said that of all the commandments in the Bible, they all come down to these two, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And in both of these, we can see how work plays a part in this. When we love God, we obey him, and then we obey the authorities he puts over us. When we love God, we honor him by working to improve and bring beauty to his creation. When we love God, we side with him to wage war against the curse, and we work because he gave us that dignity when he designed us. And when we work, we love others because we improve their existence. And we put others in a position, we put ourselves in a position that we don't make ourselves a drain on other people. This is what 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-13 says. We're going to put it on the screens for you. And Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica and he says this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Listen, any follower of Christ, anyone who's branded with the name of Jesus, is never to seek a life of idleness and expect the church and others to cover for them. Bible's clear, right, that we serve the poor, we feed the hungry, and we do this in no small part to share Jesus with them. But if someone belongs to Christ, someone claims the name of Jesus and they simply refuse to get a job, simply refuse to work, that's not something the church is supposed to coddle. Right? Because we love others by our work we love others by caring for our own houses we love others by not draining others we love others by being able to help those who can't help themselves and paul closes this section with one more reminder of our ultimate authority look at verse 25 anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism favoritism so master provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven Here's the idea, whether slave or master, whether boss or employee, whatever the role, we all have a master in heaven. All of us, whatever our lot in life, we work for, we serve, and we answer to Jesus Christ. So Paul is trying to get us to take our focus off of our earthly status. I mean, so many times when you're introduced to someone, right, or they're introduced to speaking from a crowd, what we do is we just list off the resume. Here tonight is a two-time award-winning CEO listed in Fortune Magazine's top executives of 2014, on and on and on they go. The Bible is pointing to this reality. Your identity is this. You are a slave of Jesus Christ. And you are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And those two truths should shape everything about you. He is your boss. He is your authority. He is your prize. He is your reward. This is more than dropping a Christian hat on top of your life or slapping a Christian label on things that you do. This is letting Jesus impact each and everything that you do in life. Don't believe me? Think of this chapter alone. We spent the last few weeks just looking at Colossians 3. Colossians 3 is one of the richest, fullest chapters in all of the Bible. And it's also one of the most difficult. Because it comes directly for our lives. It comes at our sin. We're told in Colossians 3 that if we are in Christ, we are to put to death not just our sin, but our desires to sin. That we must kill sexual sin. We must kill greed and idolatry and anger and slander and bad language. That we must then put on things like humility and compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience we told that we are to forgive each other, that, that peace should actually rule in our hearts and lives, that we are to be people who are just marked by gratitude, we're thankful all the time. We're told that wives should submit to their husbands, that husbands should selflessly love their wives as Jesus selflessly loved the church, that children are to obey their parents, that parents are not to discourage and embitter their children. We're told that that we are to obey and work hard for our bosses, that we should always work to serve and honor the Lord first, and that we should treat those we have authority over rightly and fairly. Listen, one chapter, there's not a single aspect of our life that's left uncovered. And it's crystal clear, isn't it? In Colossians 3, that a Christian life is simply not asking Jesus into your heart and then doing your own thing and coasting till heaven. That's not New Testament Christianity. No, if we give our lives to Jesus, it is to change everything about us. And I know that's hard. It's hard. So how do we make our way through a chapter like this and not get discouraged? How could you possibly read Colossians 3 and not be defeated? Well, we must understand what we're being called to and how it's possible. And listen, both of those are answered for us right here in Colossians 3. Colossians 3 verse 9 and 10 says, Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and you, put on, you have put on the new self, which is being re- re- renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator, the reason, we're told, that the reason you put to sin to death is because that doesn't resemble Jesus. The reason that you put on the new man is because that looks like Jesus. The reason that we forgive is because Jesus forgave us. The reason that wives submit to, Je- to their husbands is because Jesus submitted to the authority of the Father. The reason that husbands love selflessly is because Jesus loves selflessly. The reason that we work and redeem and restore and reverse the curse is because this is the work of Jesus' kingdom. The call is this, follow Christ, you to become more and more and more like Jesus. Which I know doesn't sound easier. So, the second part is this. How is it possible? How is this even possible? Well, Paul gave us the answer right at the start of chapter. Look at verse 1. Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Listen, if the destination is Jesus, you cannot get there looking at anything else. Don't try this because you'll probably die. Right? But imagine if you left here and decided you are going to drive home without ever looking where you're going. You're just going to stare straight down at your feet the whole way, never once looking up. Guess what? You're not going to make it home without crashing. So what happened is Paul knew that we would read Colossians 3. Our minds would immediately go to our failures. Oh, man, I don't line up with that. I don't do that. I struggle here. I don't, I don't think I could ever do this. Guess what? You can't. You can't do this. Because you're not the destination Jesus is. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your failures. Stop looking at your shortcomings. And please, if you do anything, stop looking to yourself to fix these things. Fix your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12 says. Set your hearts and minds on things above where Jesus reigns and has authority, Paul says. And when you set your eyes on him, you see the God who came and died for you when you were an absolute mess. The God who's never been surprised by you, never regretted saving you. The God who loves you just as you are, even in all your shortcomings. And the God who says, guess what, I began a work in you and you better believe I'm going to see it through to completion. Because when we center our affection, when we center our devotion, when we fix our eyes and set our hearts and minds on Jesus, he does a work in us that we simply cannot do in ourselves. He renews us, he redeems us, he restores us, he changes us, he forms us into his image to look like him. So please, please do not let anyone walk out of here today focused on your shortcomings or what you need to do to fix them. Leave here in complete and utter awe of who Jesus is and who he says we are in him. We are slaves to Jesus Christ. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We are forgiven and freed and made whole and made new in Jesus. He is our hope. He is our salvation. He is our life change. He's our growth. He's our king. He is everything. And he loves us with a love that does not end. So we're going to pray and then we're going to worship. And I don't want you to sing the song because the words are on the screen. I want you to sing the song like your spiritual growth depends on it because I'm telling you it does. The more you adore him, the more you're just enthralled by him, the more you're impressed by him, the more he works in your life. So let's pray. God, I'm certain we don't say it enough, but thank you for work. Thank you for this God-given privilege and responsibility of waging war against the curse. Thank you that because you honor excellence, you honor service in all areas, it doesn't matter what we do, it matters how we do it. And God, that gives purpose to every lot in life, it gives purpose to every, every employment, it gives purpose to every role. And so Lord, where we fall short here and throughout Colossians 3, God, may, may none of us look within today. May none of us beat ourselves up today. May none of us make any kind of weird commitment that we're going to do better, that we're going to work harder. May we just be in complete and utter awe of who Jesus is. Stir our affections for him, God. Stir our adoration of him. Make us just be amazed at who he is. We know that's how you work in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.